welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the threat to the lives of environment protectors around the world, with a special focus on the first environmental activist in the U.S. to lose their life at the hands of police while defending the environment and the people who depend on it, as part of the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement against the construction of what they have dubbed Cop City. Clips today are from the BBC News, The Takeaway, Down to Earth, Unicorn Riot, Democracy Now!, a DW documentary, and NBC News, with additional members-only clips from The Takeaway and Democracy Now!, and stay tuned to the end, where I'll have a conversation with a friend of the fallen forest defender from the protests in Atlanta. A record number of environmental activists were murdered last year. According to the campaign group Global Witness, there were more than 220 killings, many of them linked to resource exploitation such as logging and mining. A third targeted indigenous people. The highest number of attacks, 65, was in Colombia. So let's join now Louis Wilson, who is Senior Communications Advisor from Global Witness. Louis, good to see you. That's a shocking number, 220 people killed at a time when the climate crisis is getting worse by the day. What else did your report find? Well, as you point out, our report found that as the climate crisis intensifies, so too does violence against those protecting the planet. Um, Our report found a very clear link between resource exploitation, so the felling of trees, the extraction of minerals, and violence against people protecting the planet. So in some of these countries that we're looking at, is there just no protection or sufficient protection to protect those who are defending their land? That's correct. And governments and industry in these countries, the worst affected countries, have made it very clear that their priority is resource extraction over the rights and benefits of communities, especially indigenous communities in the global south and the planet. So you're seeing as well, I guess, unofficial agreements between state forces and and private companies too? It's always more complicated than a direct agreement. And because of the way that the global economy is set up, it's often very difficult to point to a specific country. We can identify in many cases specific industries that are causing the violence. But because of the way that global supply chains are set up, it's very difficult to identify specific companies, certainly, and specific uh, state actors. But what we can say is that the same activities that are driving climate breakdown are causing violence against some of the most vulnerable communities. Can I ask you, though, Louis, specifically about Colombia, because it is the country with the highest number of deaths. What's happening there? Well, Colombia is a particularly complicated context. We have a peace deal that was signed in 2016 with the FARC, and that has created um, a lot of tension in rural areas as uh, there's been a change in the the power dynamics there. But also we see through COVID this prioritisation of uh, economic development, uh, resource exploitation, and a closing down of civic space. So uh, things like the free press, things like um, civil society were not able to function as effectively in 2020. And when that happens, you do tend to see increased violence against vulnerable communities. So changes to environmental law legislation, obviously crucial in many countries to protect some of these people. Absolutely. We need, we need to regulate big corporations and their supply chains. That is the most crucial thing. And it's not happening fast enough or anywhere near uh, in enough jurisdictions.
In January 2022, Lance Bottoms' successor, Andre Dickens, assumed the mantle of Atlanta mayor. As a member of the council, Dickens was among the 10 who voted in support of Cop City. And while elected officials were on board, residents across the area were registering their disapproval. The proposed site for Cop City is in unincorporated DeKalb County, located in a lower income, predominantly black area and not represented on Atlanta's city council. A local firm conducted a survey of residents near the proposed site and found 98 percent opposed the project. Activists have not been content to simply send an email or call a public comment line. Resistance to Cop City has been organized and enduring, and part of that resistance is focused on the land itself. Developing now, fighting back, a battle over unused land is causing a rift between Atlanta police and activists, and neither side seems to be backing down, at least anytime soon. We're coming to document what's happening in this public park. This public park is still accessible to the public. Back the My name is Sean, and I'm a participant in the movement to defend the Atlanta Forest. Defend the Atlanta Forest is a direct action advocacy organization, which has taken a leading role in resisting the police training facility. And throughout much of last year, they physically occupied trees in the forest on the proposed site of Cop City. They identified the South Forest, the South River Forest, as one of the four lungs of the city, one of the four areas with the most crucial tree canopy that was going to be necessary for dealing with rainwater to prevent flooding, with filtering out pollutants, and also having a tree canopy that helps protect from the urban heat island effect. So when a city gets hotter than the areas surrounding it, because there's all this concrete absorbing the sun and then releasing it back out. So as climate change worsens and our days are hotter and filled with more smog, we need tree canopy to protect our city from these impacts and to make it more livable on a day-to-day basis. And don't just imagine resting in a peaceful treehouse. Defend the Atlanta forest encampments have been repeatedly raided by police using some of the very tactics and tools Cop City seeks to enhance. During raids last month, more than a dozen forest defenders were arrested. Five were charged with domestic terrorism, and public officials in Georgia have described these activists as, quote, a criminal network. The ACLU of Georgia says these charges are an overreach because the crimes forest defenders are accused of include throwing rocks at police and starting dumpster fires. The risks are necessary because we want to have a future that we can live in. The ends justify themselves, really. You know, I personally have a child on the way. I want them to see this forest that is, you know, a part of our neighborhood and where some of the best days of my life have been. And so I'm willing to take risks. And the forest defenders aren't the only one facing risks. Building Cop City carries risk for the residents living near South River Forest. Here again is Kamau Franklin of Community Movement Builders. 12 firing ranges are going to be built uh, in this area. Explosives are going to be detonated in this area. So the noise pollution, coupled with the fact that this area is being deforested in an era of climate disaster, is just unfathomable for that community to have to go through that and what should happen to that area uh, that was promised to them as a recreational area for that community. 
Cambodia, Chut Wuti, an environmental investigator and activist, was murdered while trying to halt an illegal logging operation. In April 2021, Sandra Liliana Pena, an indigenous governor in southwest Colombia, fought for the eradication of coca crops and was killed near her home by armed men. Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo is facing the added threat of oil and gas extraction. One of the eight rangers of the park, Joanna Stuchbury, was shot outside her home in Kenya. In June this year, journalist Dom Phillips, who wrote extensively for The Guardian and The Observer, and Bruno Pereira, a Brazilian expert on uncontacted tribes, were murdered in the Javari Valley in Brazil's Amazon. According to Global Witness Report, titled Decade of Defiance, 1,733 activists were killed between 2012 and 2021. 227 of them were killed in the year 2020. This is the highest number of killings in a year, despite the pandemic. Last year, 200 environmental defenders were murdered, nearly four people a week. Out of the 200, 14 were Indians. This includes three tribals, Kawasi Waga, Uikapandu and Korsa, who were allegedly shot dead by security forces, ironically during a protest against a security force camp in the Silga village in Chhattisgarh. Father Stan Swami, a Jesuit priest from Jharkhand, was among 16 renowned activists, academics and lawyers who were charged under a draconian anti-terror law in what came to be known as the Bhima Koregaon case. He was suffering from Parkinson's disease while in custody and died there itself. Mexico recorded the highest number of killings, with 54 killings in 2021. Over 40% of those killed were indigenous people. Whilst Brazil and India both saw a rise in lethal attacks, both Colombia and the Philippines saw a drop in killings. Yet, overall, they remained two of the countries with the highest number of killings in the world since 2012. Over three quarters of the attacks recorded took place in Latin America. In Brazil, Peru and Venezuela, 78% of attacks took place in the Amazon. Global Witness documented 10 killings in Africa. Where a sector could be identified, just over a quarter of lethal attacks were reportedly linked to resource exploitation and hydroelectric dams and other infrastructure. These defenders are putting themselves in danger by confronting a viewpoint that sees nature as something not to be cherished and protected, but to be conquered and subdued. This is a viewpoint with its roots in the Western industrial revolutions of the 19th century, or even further back in the scientific theory of the Western so-called Enlightenment. It matters that this viewpoint originated in the West. As this report shows, nearly all of the murdered environmental and land defenders are from the Global South. And yet, it is not the Global South that reaps the supposed economic rewards of all this violence. This viewpoint has brought us to the brink of collapse. With this report, Global Witness aims to urge governments to enforce laws that protect activists while also laying out blueprints for accountability in companies throughout their global operations and have zero tolerance for attacks on land defenders. Global Witness CEO Mike Davis says, activists and communities play a crucial role as the first line of defense against ecological collapse as well as being frontrunners in the campaign to prevent it. It is high time governments step up 
identify their fault lines, execute their responsibilities, and do a better job of defending their defenders for the ongoing decade. The future of our species and our planet depends on it. being constructed so that the police can learn tactics to go after the corporations that are polluting our neighborhoods or practicing wage theft against low-wage workers or go against the developers that are exploiting our communities and literally forcing people out of their homes due to rising rents and property taxes. No, they're going to be learning urban warfare tactics to harass our communities, to surveil us, to prevent us from doing things like gathering here today and letting the public know what's going on. You know, it's no coincidence that they've mobilized so quickly around an issue like this because they recognize that they need to expand their power so they can hold on to it. The Atlanta Police Department is using chemical weapons against unarmed, nonviolent political protesters. This is not normal. This is not normal in Atlanta. It should not be normal anywhere. Why is it happening? Well, we've seen over the past year or so, um, during the course of the movement against Cop City, the protest movement against Cop City, that the police have been engaging in a deliberate campaign to demonize this particular protest movement. They've made an effort in the press to associate this protest movement with fires. Even the governor got in on it at one point, calling the Stop Cop City protest movement terrorists. But I want to be clear. The people that the police are attacking with plastic bullets, with chemical weapons, as, uh, as recently as yesterday, these people were not involved in threatening anybody. They were not involved in endangering anybody. They were sitting passively in trees trying to express a political position. So we can see that the Atlanta police are engaging in a clear campaign of escalation of tactics over the past year. We need to make sure that we are asking the question, why is it okay to cut down over 100 acres of forest and that's not considered a violent act? Why is it okay to have 90% of the jails filled up with black people and that's not considered a violent act? The police have continuously used violence to push through this project. And so if we only focus on the destruction of property, but we don't focus on the destruction of people's lives, we are doing a favor for the police, but we are not talking about the real issues here about why we want to stop Cop City. This fight will continue, and it's important for all of us to get involved, to rally around those who were arrested yesterday to demand their release, right? To materially support the organizations and groups that are fighting against Cop City, and also to defend this community, right? Because this community has historically been victims of over-policing. There's a juvenile detention center down the street, there's just a, a huge apparatus of policing in this community that they're experiencing even more of because the police have escalated their tactics against the fight to stop Cop City. Are we going to end up in a situation where the police are murdering protesters in order to advance not public safety, but their particular political agenda in building Cop City? This is Jasmine Burnett of the group Community Movement Builders. People are asking for affordable housing, paving.
paving the streets, right? Having sidewalks, better access to MARTA. And instead, they are supporting a project, a $90 million project to construct the largest urban warfare training facility in this country. And while we understand that this is a very local issue, right, it's happening right here, we also know that this is a national problem, this is a global problem. The same tactics that they're using against forest defenders are the same tactics that the Israeli government is using against Palestinians, right? The same tactics that the U.S. military is employing in Africa through the AFRICOM program, right? This is a global struggle against the occupation of our communities. We go now to Atlanta, Georgia, where we're joined by Kamau Franklin, the founder of Community Movement Builders, part of the coalition trying to stop the construction of Cop City in Atlanta. Kamau, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, we knew you in New York when you were part of the Center uh, for Constitutional Rights. You've moved to Atlanta. Talk about the significance of what's happening now and five activists being charged with domestic terrorism. Yes. Thank you for having me. And as an update, it is now six activists. A day after the initial raid, another raid was done and another activist was arrested and is now being charged. So we think these charges are setting up uh, really the idea of criminalizing dissent around Cop City. So far, these activists have been denied bail. There's a second bail hearing that is coming up. But because of the, the, the outrageous charges, the very generalized charge of domestic terrorism under Georgia law, um, that these folks are still being held. And this has been a concerted effort by law enforcement agencies from the city, uh, the Atlanta Police Department, the county, the Cab Police Department, the state, the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. At the federal level, the Homeland Security and FBI have all been involved in a task force which is targeting these organizers and activists on the ground for being opposed to Cop City. And, and what are the specific actions that they uh, so allegedly have taken to warrant uh, these kinds of charges? What an interesting thing about these arrests is that these arrests were basically a, a, a push of in the force to destroy uh, everything that was built in terms of a resistance movement, uh, a, a group of folks that we call the forest defenders in terms of the loose coalition of people who have actually moved in the forest or who spend days in the forest camping out as an act of civil disobedience. Remember, Georgia is the place where John Lewis and uh, good trouble is supposed to be accepted. But civil disobedience in the forest is something that is not accepted when the police want to build a highly militarized training ground. And so while these folks were just at part of their encampment, they were raided by the police, uh, again, by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Folks were sitting, literally sitting in tree huts um, where they were uh, uh, all their, their camp equipment was destroyed. Rubber bullets were used. Uh, they were guns were pointing at their head. They were involved at that particular time in no activity whatsoever. Um, except for the act of being in the forest. Uh, and they all were taken in and then charged in this sort of uh, RICO or conspiracy idea um, that the act of protest, the act of civil disobedience, uh, direct action uh, is something that's now being criminalized uh, in a statute that really is, doesn't get used in Georgia, that's been on the books for a number of years. Um, and so these folks were doing absolutely nothing but being in the forest as forest defenders at the time of their arrest. And could you tell us a little bit more about Cop City? I mean, how did this idea originate? Who backed it? Uh, what politicians were behind it? 
Cop City is something that came out after the George Floyd uprisings of 2020, after George Floyd was killed, Breonna Taylor was killed here in Atlanta, Rashad Brooks was killed by the police. Um, and there were massive protests, as we know, around the country, even around the world. Um, around police violence, police brutality. Um, there were calls for defunding the police. There were calls to abolish the police. There were calls to find new ways to bring safety to various communities, particularly black and brown working class communities. And it was during that time that Keisha Lance Bottoms, then the former mayor of Atlanta and the city council, along with the Atlanta Police Foundation, the Atlanta Police Department, the police union came up with the idea to give basically a gift to the police to make them feel better as a way of changing the narrative. And as we've seen over the last few years since the George Floyd uprisings, um, both Democrats and Republicans, elected officials, private companies, the same private companies that claimed that they were supporting Black Lives Matter have put literally tens of millions of dollars into funding this police apparatus, this cop city. And so during that time period of shortly after the uprisings, the idea was was came up with that we should, uh, we being Atlanta, should give this gift to the police of this training center, which again is basically, as, was, as Jasmine stated in your clip, is an urban warfare center where uh, there are going to be over a dozen uh, shooting ranges. There's going to be an explosive range. There are going to be mock cities to practice urban warfare. There's going to be a helicopter pad for Black Hawk helicopters to land. So uh, this is being done right in the middle of a working class and poor black city, uh, I mean, black area in Atlanta, one of the last left intact. Um, and so this is all planned around changing the narrative, talking about crime and how this facility is going to be used to fight crime, which is, you know, a, a lie on its face because this facility, even without protests, would take four to five years to build. So this is basically a boondoggle that's been given to the police to make them feel better, to change the narrative from abolishing or defunding the police to one in which now the police are needed to solve acts of crime. So can you talk about, Kamal Franklin, the alternatives to militarized police that your group and the whole coalition is calling for? And what's going to happen to these six activists charged with domestic terrorism? We just have a minute. Yeah, I mean, our groups have called for uh, alternatives to policing in terms of having outside agencies that call if there's mental health issues, if there's homeless issues, uh, on a more radical end. We've actually called for our communities uh, having the ability to control any policing that happens, which means the ability to hire or fire policing, to discipline police in our communities. We've called for community uh, uh, cop watches where we watch the police, safety walks, where we create other avenues of safety, which are not a Around the police. So we are continually to supporting the organizers and activists who were arrested. Um, we are gathering bail funds as we speak. We're getting lawyers for these folks. Um, again, another bail hearing is scheduled for the 27th. So right now we need as much solidarity and support as possible to support these folks and to continue to fight against Cop City being built. We don't stay long. Our camera could attract the police and the army. The young men will be working through the night. Before we head back south to Orgoniland, Dr. Blessed wants us to see ExxonMobil's gas flaring, the practice of intentional burning of natural gas during the oil extraction process. Even with this flaring, there's no compensation. It affects the water, it affects the soil, destroy the soil, 
it affects the flora and the fauna, it affects the vegetation, it affects the farmland, and the heat again is unbearable to the human human life. Gas flaring is a significant contributor to climate change. Despite being made illegal in the Niger Delta in 2005, companies continue to do it. As an activist, you mobilize the local people for demonstration. They fish you out. They can block your account. They can pay illegal money to your account to say that you are doing, you are doing an online fraud. You are into financial scam. You'll be arrested. Security guards suddenly appear, even though we're not on ExxonMobil premises. We leave. A number of oil companies have promised to end gas flaring by 2030 and instead using the associated gas as an energy resource. But for now, the toxic practice continues unabated. Back in Ogorniland, for environmental activist Celestine Akpobari, there is only one way the oil-contaminated Niger Delta can be made livable again. We must continue this struggle, because if we don't do it, there will be no future for Ogoni coming after us. And that's why, no matter how dangerous it is, we will continue this struggle to fight. Just like the children you saw in the creek, they have to swim. They have to drink polluted water. They see crude oil on it, but they have told you there is no alternative. The shell oil spill devastated Ogoni land, but the people who live here are not ready to give up hope. With their tireless campaigning, environmentalists and human rights activists are risking their lives, not only here, but around the world. According to a report by the organization Global Witness, 227 environmental activists worldwide were killed in 2020. More than ever before. They're particularly at risk in countries that have plentiful resources such as timber, oil and gold deposits. Or where drug cultivation and the illegal palm oil industry are flourishing. The actual figure could be even higher. The headquarters of the Environmental Investigation Agency, EIA, are in Washington, D.C. The agency investigates environmental crimes, gathering information undercover in highly dangerous places. The threats are growing and to some extent becoming increasingly violent. In some cases, indigenous people who defend themselves against illegal loggers and gold prospectors have been tortured and massacred. We also work with people who get threatening phone calls. Their families are threatened. They're sent messages on WhatsApp that say, I know where your child goes to school. This is Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens speaking Tuesday. Today, I am pleased to report that we have reached an agreement with DeKalb County to issue the construction permits and begin to move the project forward. 
My administration is aggressively committed to environmental protection. We have been uniquely focused on expanding our protected green spaces in the city. In my first year of office alone, the city of Atlanta and our partners acquired an additional 260 acres throughout the city to be used for parks and green space. Meanwhile, outside City Hall, protesters chanted, Cop City will never be built. This is community organizer Micah Herskin. How dare they stand in front of people and say, oh, this plan where we're tearing down trees is actually good for people and it's good for the economy and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually going to protect people. It's obviously false and I hope that it's reported as such because this is, it's such classic blatant spin that, you know, they're taking us for fools if they think anyone would believe that tearing down trees and putting cement over it is protecting the environment. That's outrageous. Earlier this week, a coalition of more than 1,300 climate and racial justice groups called for the resignation of Atlanta's Democratic mayor, saying he's failed to denounce the police for shooting dead the activist known as Tortuguita, and instead criticized the protesters. This is Mayor Dickens speaking over the weekend about the protesters. And it should be noted that these individuals were not Atlanta or Georgia residents. Most of them traveled into our city to wreak havoc. Well, to look more at the city of Atlanta's crackdown on Cop City and what the protesters have been charged with, domestic terrorism, we're joined by Aline Brown, whose new investigation for Grista's headline, Documents Show How 19 Cop City Activists Got Charged with Terrorism. Georgia police are invoking a 2017 terrorism law against activists accused of little more than trespassing. Aline, welcome back to Democracy Now! You report nine of the forest defenders facing domestic terrorism charges are accused simply of trespassing in the woods by camping and living in a treehouse. One person was deemed part of Defend the Atlanta Forest for, quote, occupying a treehouse while wearing a gas mask and camouflage clothing. Can you just please explain? Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I reviewed 20 uh, arrest warrants for 19 people charged with domestic terrorism in Atlanta and found that none of those individuals are alleged to have committed any act that seriously injured anyone. Like you mentioned, um, nine of the warrants describe no specific illegal acts beyond misdemeanor trespassing, essentially camping in a forest. Um, instead, for those charged in the forest, their um, domestic terrorism allegations seem to rest on the idea that the Department of Homeland Security designated um, people associated with the slogan, Defend the Atlanta Forest, to be domestic violent extremists. You know, I asked DHS about this, and they told me that they don't classify any groups that way, although they do uh, communicate with local and state officials about threats. Could you explain, uh, Aline, the, the origins of Georgia's uh, terror law and how it is uh, that these people were charged? Yeah. So Georgia's domestic terrorism law uh, passed in 2017, and it was really drafted as a means to confront uh, these mass shootings that we see month in and month out. 
Um, specifically, lawmakers um, named the 2015 massacre of nine black churchgoers in Charleston, South Carolina, who were uh, shot and killed by white supremacist Dylan Roof. Um, so, you know, essentially, this law was created to address um, violence by uh, white supremacists. Um, you know, at the time, civil liberties groups uh, really um, put out that this was going to be used instead against people expressing their First Amendment rights and uh, marginalized communities. So it appears a version of that is what has come to pass. And this really serves as a warning signal to people on both sides of the party, lawmakers that have continued to suggest new domestic terrorism legislation is necessary to confront mass shootings. Roy Wood Jr. of The Daily Show and Comedy Central recently went to the Atlanta forest to cover the movement to stop Cop City. We want to go to a clip. Hey, bingo. Y'all got bingo night? Yeah. Where's the Molotov cocktail station? Where's the gun training station? The majority of us just want to live in peace with each other. We work here on ourselves and we do yoga. And we meditate, we get massages here. But y'all get massages? You do yoga, meditate, stretch, and deal with your inner, sh- like therapy. Yeah. yeah. That's Roy Wood Jr. of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. If only what was happening there was so funny. Aline Brown, um, if you could take it from there. And also, if they face domestic terrorism charges, how many years in prison do they face? And does this make it easier if the protesters are considered domestic terrorists for SWAT teams to move in and, well, in the case of Tortuguita, to kill them? Um, so the, these charges carry mandatory mini- minimums of five to 35 years. So they're very serious charges. Um, and, you know, they, they really, a lot of people are, are, attorneys are saying that they're legally quite flimsy. You know, um, the law says that you have to commit a felony in order to be charged with domestic terrorism in Georgia. Uh, as I've, as we've talked about, um, a lot of these people are charged with misdemeanor trespassing. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is that, um, this may not be meant to, these charges may not be meant to stick. Uh, perhaps instead it's meant to send a message that, um, this is a criminal group. These are terrorists. And, um, you know, maybe someone with more moderate views doesn't want to be affiliated with such a group. Um, so in that sense, it creates a sort of public relations message that perhaps does make it easier to go in and evict people and um, escalate to something like what we saw on January 18th with Tortuguita. We just have a minute, Aline, but if you can respond to the mayor's latest announcement, they're moving forward with Cop City and the feeling in Atlanta around what this is and if you could explain what it is. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, what I found is that this is really a wide-ranging movement. Uh, There are, of course, forest defenders occupying this forest, defending the trees. There are also parks advocates, um, people concerned about uh, police brutality, gentrification, uh, neighborhood associations that have stood out against this project. So I think um, Atlanta officials, as long as they continue to push this, are going to continue to face 
face um, a really kind of strong, wide-ranging movement. The murder rate is especially high in the countries bordering the Amazon rainforest. Here in Peru's Pucallpa region, illegal deforestation is a major problem. Home to a population of 2 million, Pucallpa, on the edge of the rainforest, is a hub of the illegal trade in tropical timber. Logs brought here are shipped first to Lima and from there to the rest of the world. Lucila Pautrat is fighting to put an end to environmental crime. She works for an organization called Kene, advocating for the rainforests and the indigenous people who live in them. The forest sciences engineer gives them a voice in court and isn't afraid to sue big companies. Her work has made her many enemies. She's entitled to round-the-clock police protection, but tends to go without, preferring to keep a low profile when she travels. Tomorrow, she's set to take a flight over an area that's recently been illegally cleared. The goal is to gather evidence that can be used in court. But first, Lucila Pautrat wants to gather more information. The indigenous residents of the village of Santa Clara de Uchunia are concerned about their rights. A crisis meeting has been called. The village used to be surrounded by rainforest, but then a company began felling trees and planting oil palms in their place. The villagers took legal action. Since then, they've been the target of threats, says Ivan Flores. People are coming here trying to kill us. We have to go into the forest to hide. They come to kill us, to destroy us. Not only me, but also my family. People have already been killed in villages that border our territory, including a village leader. Our lives are at risk. People have been contracted to kill us. The crisis team is alarmed. At least 11 people have been killed here in recent years. The killers and the people they take their orders from have never been caught. Locals have no protection and fear for their lives. We want our lives back, our environment, our nature, our rivers, our pristine streams, our flora and fauna, our animals. Kene has taken their case to court. We head to the rainforest with Lucila Pautrat, who wants to see for herself what's happening in the village. For security reasons, the pilots are not told the route until takeoff. There could be informants everywhere. It's immediately apparent that the rainforest is disappearing. Below us are vast expanses of recently cleared areas. Wide-scale deforestation means indigenous people no longer have wildlife to hunt. This undermines food security among the population. Fishing is also in decline because heavy machinery is polluting the rivers. Santa Clara de Uchunia is located on a river. This is where Ivan Flores comes from and it's where seven people were murdered. We're just arriving in Santa Clara. Where the murders took place? Yes, and where indigenous leaders are being threatened. 
As we can see, the entire area is surrounded by palm oil plantations. This used to be dense rainforest. Now, all that's here is an oil palm monoculture. The harvests are processed in this factory. Paltrot takes photos that can later serve as evidence in court. Oil palms as far as the eye can see. The plantations are expanding year by year. All this used to be pristine forest. The palm oil plantations are illegal. We're losing a huge diversity of primary tropical forests for a business that is simply not sustainable. It also violates the rights not only of indigenous communities, but of all Peruvians and all of humanity, because it affects the whole planet. I want to ask you the same thing about what you know about what happened and how you're feeling right now. I'll start with the latter question. I think not just me, but many folks who I've talked to, you know, feel horrified at what took place. Uh, the killing of this young organizer, activist, the fact that the city, the county and the state and now the federal government has pursued this policy of criminalizing protesters um, overcharging protesters and creating a narrative that suggests the protesters are dangerous in response actually to the fact that it is the police um, who have been a danger to the larger community, which is why we knew right away that we would want to protest uh, Cop City. Uh, the little information that Sean mentioned that we know from the incident is all directed by the narrative that the police have given to us. Um, we should point out that uh, although the idea that this task force included the Atlanta City Police, DeKalb County Police, a SWAT team, uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, state troopers, and from some news reports, even the FBI, there is not one agency that had body cam footage <laughs> of what took place. And the City of Atlanta Police are required to have body cam on when they're interacting with the public. But yet we have no body cam image whatsoever. The only narrative we have is the police narrative. And the only thing we really do know is what the police have said. Um, and so this is all we know. Is we don't know at what angle Tortuguita was shot, how many times uh, they were shot. None of this information has been made public. Um, and that's why we're demanding an independent investigation other than what the police are saying. Sean, did you know Manuel? I knew Tortuguita in passing and by legend almost as someone who had, you know, very bravely broadcast themselves in a tree sit while they were being fired at with rubber bullets and pepper balls from below uh, and stayed in the tree and not come down despite this uh, onslaught of police violence against them. Sean, were you in the forest when it was raided on that day, or have you been there when it's been raided on, on any of the days? Yeah. So the Atlanta forest, the Wilani forest in question, it's 
hundreds of acres of woods with roads bounding it on all sides and creek that runs through it. It's fairly wide creek. And so on a, a normal day, you can find a few dozen people uh, on the ground throughout the forest in various tree sits or camps. Usually when there's a big raid happening of police, there's kind of uh, early indications of like a helicopter flying over these kinds of things. And then uh, people prepare as best they can, you know, by either uh, making sure they're up in tree sits or uh, evacuating the area. Um, and so when, you know, a raid is happening, there's hundreds of acres and there's police kind of combed out, fanning through all of it. Uh, a lot of times they're just destroying all material and infrastructure they can find, wrecking people's tents, slashing tarps, uh, destroying water, uh, destroying cooking equipment, destroying food, just kind of having these, you know, very uh, aggressive reactions to, to just basic encampments. Talk to me about the response of the city to this killing. I mean, I think the the city and 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 you know, it's uh, I think at best you could say one police car was burning, not the city of Atlanta. <laughs> but I think the response of uh, the city has been their response since the very beginning of protest. And so, what seems to be underreported is that even at the beginning of the protest against Cop City, when People were doing demonstrations and marches on city sidewalks. Um, we would have at the end of those demonstrations, police uh, jumping in the middle of them and arresting people uh, for just standing or talking after demonstrations. And they've come in during demonstrations. They've used pepper spray. They've violently thrown people to the ground. Folks have been arrested. This is pre the charges of domestic terrorism, but still charges of disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, threats after the arrest of loss of paperwork if people didn't cooperate. Um, and so the tactics of the police have been violent towards the protesters since the very beginning. But unfortunately, this has gone underreported or not reported as violence and scare tactics used against protesters. Um, and so as the, the, the cop city idea passed, um, and the brave forest defenders, the people who decided to do acts of civil disobedience and direct action by taking up space in the forest, the, the police and, again, the various agencies have only stepped up their tactics to the point where, as was stated, they're using not only rubber bullets and pepper balls, but now live ammunition. Um, and they're using the tactics of overcharging in fact, arresting at all and putting out uh, scary press releases to the media um, about terrorists, which, again, as Sean stated, is only meant to criminalize the movement, to scare people off um, and to make it so that they can build this monstrosity that no one in the city of Atlanta asked for um, without there being legitimate uh, protest against it. Okay, Kamal, there's a fairly strong counter-narrative that these protesters are actually not residents of Atlanta or of surrounding communities, that they are out-of-state agitators. Uh, how would you respond to that? 
Well, I think it's very interesting that the language of calling people outside troublemakers is continually used and as outsiders. These are the same officials who last week were honoring Dr. King, who continually honor the civil rights movement, who honor freedom riders, people who traveled all across the country to protest against acts of 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 civil rights violations, illegal law or well, laws that were immoral um, and ordinances that were immoral from the deep south up to the, the, the north. These types of interventions were happening in the 50s and 60s. And now these people are celebrated, uh, although these people are invoking the same language as Southern segregationists to deride actions of civil disobedience and protest against what people find to be immoral laws against city, state, county, and sometimes federal governments. So I think I think it's a complete misnomer for anyone to take that language seriously, the movement against Cop City is diverse. It is people local to Atlanta and the surrounding areas. Um, it is people who come outside to express their First Amendment rights to protest in Atlanta, as they should do. So we think that language is really uh, just a way to, again, use language which is meant to, to criminalize or make people feel like they're outsiders or to make make people seem like they're outsiders uh, and is the very language taken from southern segregationists when they wanted to be negative around civil rights actions in the 50s and 60s. Tonight, former energy executive Roberto David Castillo has been sentenced for ordering the killing of environmental activist Berta Caceres in 2016. Her murder sparked an outcry across Honduras, demanding accountability. They thought they killed Berta, but what they really did was inspire thousands and thousands of more Bertas. Roxana Altotes is a law professor at UC Berkeley, but was also hired by Caceres' family to independently investigate the murder due to a lack of confidence in the country to investigate. We exposed information that demonstrated that her murder had been orchestrated, planned by executives and investors uh, in an energy company in, in Honduras. Castillo is the eighth person to be charged and convicted in connection to the murder of the environmental activist. The company executives that orchestrated Berta's murder really underestimated her strong, strong relationships in, in Honduras and really really globally. Caceres was an outspoken member of the Lensa indigenous group whose work gained her global recognition. No es un crimen defender nuestros propios derechos como pueblos indígenas. But at home, her reputation as a staunch defender of women's rights helped her to build a following, but also made her a target. At the time of her murder, she was protesting the Aguazarca hydroelectric dam, intended to be built on the Guacarque River, considered sacred indigenous land. In Honduras, the pattern that, that had emerged was that often mega big projects um, were planned for indigenous communities um, in the name of progress that led to the erosion 
of the rights of those communities and its members. Castillo was a former Honduran Army intelligence officer and at the time the head of Dacia, the company behind the construction of the dam. Last year, he was charged with orchestrating Caceres' murder and yesterday sentenced to 22 years and six months, a lighter sentence compared to the seven co-collaborators who are now serving between 30 to 50 years. Berta's youngest daughter, Olivia, responding in a tweet calling his sentence outrageous and saying David Castillo, co-author of My Mother's Murder, has not received the maximum sentence. Her killing was not the result of the actions of a few bad people, um, but it was really the result of a bad system, a system that profits from environmental destruction and the denial of of rights to communities that have been marginalized and disenfranchised for decades by traditional political systems. We've just heard clips today, starting with the BBC News, reporting on the record number of murdered environmental activists in 2020. The takeaway explained the activism around the Cop City project in Atlanta. Down to Earth highlighted specific stories of defenders being murdered due to their activism. Unicorn Riot filmed a press conference put on by the Atlanta Forest Protectors after the initial raid and terrorism charges back in December. Democracy Now! discussed the domestic terrorism charges against protesters in Atlanta and the origin of the Cop City Project. A DW documentary highlighted protests against gas flaring and oil spills. Democracy Now! dove deeper into the talking points around outside agitators and the purpose of the unfounded domestic terrorism charges. The DW documentary continued with a focus on the murder rate surrounding the Amazon rainforest. The takeaway discussed the violence of the police and the criminalization of protesters. And NBC News reported on the conviction of an energy company executive for the murder of an environmental protector in Honduras. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Takeaway giving an in-depth history of the site of the Cop City Project. The... Atlanta City Prison Farm was first stolen indigenous land. Then it was a plantation owned by the Key family. The city purchased it in 1911. And even in that, we have the actual, like, I guess you'd call it a bill of sale, the property deed. Um, it's referred to as the WB Key Plantation. And Democracy Now! highlighted the event to honor murdered environmental defenders at the Climate Conference of Parties in 2021. In our country, we say those who died defending life cannot be considered dead. We would like to invite you to join us in saying some of their names. We cannot say all of their names because it would become night if we said all of their names. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And today, I have something a little different to leave you with because our very own volunteer, Ben, who helps with our transcriptions, was a friend, a fellow activist, a co-conspirator 
member, a comrade of the forest defender who was killed during the police raid on the encampment in the Atlanta forest. So I asked him if he wanted to come on the show to talk about his fallen friend, the movement, and how you all can get involved. So the famous transcriptionist Ben, the monosyllabic Ben, because of your name, not because you speak in monosyllables. Thanks for joining us. This is a this is a unique conversation. Happy to be here. Though the these circumstances are definitely not ideal. Of course, way of to course. make the show for the first time. <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. So so you were the first person to introduce this story to us. The, the Cop City story had not crossed my radar until the tragic death of the forest protector, who turns out was your friend. So tell us how you knew them. So Manny was a local organizer in Tallahassee with us, not working solely with any of the orgs that I worked with, but sort of all over the place. They did not have any one org or group that they were committed to, but rather the purpose of feeding people and taking care of people who were down on their luck. And that was sort of their North Star. So feeding people like that, that was their role in, in the group was? Well, the, the main organization in Tallahassee that they worked with was Food Not Bombs. That was the one they were probably most committed to. And they spent a lot of time cooking on their own to provide food for Food Not Bombs, always feeding homeless people. They were homeless at times themselves in Tallahassee. And so I don't know if it was because of that specifically that they felt this kinship and this need to take care of people in that situation but it was something they at least had commiseration with and so taking care of the houseless population in Tallahassee was one of the main things they were focused on and something else that Manny did in Tallahassee was start their own mutual aid network the Bond County Mutual Aid Network which came about after realizing that some of the other mutual aid in Tallahassee was not meeting all of the needs. And so, as I said before, being homeless themselves, they had a better understanding of what resources people in that situation could need. And so after the city tried to close down one of the only overnight shelters that Tallahassee has, especially during the winter, they opened overnight cold shelters for people, multiple, to make sure that, that the homeless population in Tallahassee would have somewhere to escape the elements, especially during the cold snaps that we have throughout the winter, because the city has no interest in keeping that population of the city safe. So it wasn't just that Manny participated in a lot of those things. Many built them from the ground up in places where they saw that they were lacking. So Manny really lived the life of a revolutionary organizer. That's it's, it's amazing. The, the stories you hear about people, sadly, so often after the fact, but I mean, people, people are amazing. <laughs> um, one thing I, I particularly wanted to, to get your insight on was there, there's a quote from a Guardian piece. Amazingly, the journalist writing the article, I think, had interviewed Manny in the past and so had a quote that they could sort of pull forward for the story after their death. And the quote uh, from Manny was, 
Some of us forest defenders are rowdy gringos. They're just against the state. Still, I don't know how you can connect to anything if that's your entire political analysis. And we talked about that sort of in the best of left back channels here. And you said that sort of explained or gave some insight into their life. Could you expand on that? Yeah. So as far as political ideology goes, Manny was definitely in the anarchist camp. And so the anti-state sentiments are very strong for them. But the part about that quote that really stuck out to me was the part about the guiding political ideology. And I feel like that was sort of Manny because they were never committed to any one thing. And so they had a tendency to maybe veer into what I'd call at times backwards actions. You know, maybe they weren't helping the movement as much as they thought they were. But no matter how they acted, interacted with various groups, came to actions, any of that sort of stuff, you could always know that regardless of what they were saying or the actions they were taking, they were genuine. They were doing everything they did with the best of intentions because their main goal was to help people and bring about the struggle of revolution. So now that the listeners are informed and angry, do you want to do the honors and give some direction on what people can do? Talk a little bit of whatever you know about the Defend the Atlanta Forest organization? Absolutely. So I have never interacted with the group myself. There was a small part of me that was jealous of Manny being able to pick up and move to Atlanta. It would be nice if we all lived the sort of nomadic lifestyle that lets people just pick up and move to defend a forest. But that org itself has been doing a lot of great work, both defending the forest, but bringing attention to people in the Atlanta area, calling out all of the corporate interests that are involved in this. And so if you go to their website, which is defendtheatlantaforest.org, they have a list of resources on there where you can donate where you can find the list of investors, you can call the city, they have resources for organizing bail funds and, and that sort of stuff, because we've seen global solidarity with this movement. And so they have some resources on their website to help out with that. Excellent. Thank you. And I'll say it because I know you won't, but Ben, you are a badass on the ground activist in in your hometown of of Tallahassee. And when I asked you for some thoughts on uh, where we could send people, you brought up something that applies to anyone everywhere. And and that's to focus on what's happening in in their own hometown. Could you expand on that? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's easy to see something like this crop up and all the attention goes directly to Atlanta, which in the immediate makes sense. But as that dies down, it's important to take a look at what's happening in your own city. And so, for example, here in Tallahassee, not even a month after a Tallahassee resident being killed in Atlanta for the construction of Cop City, our own mayor has now proposed to give the Tallahassee Police Department an additional $1.7 million on top of the $63 million budget they got for this fiscal year, which is one third of our city's total budget, to build a cop training center. And this strikes me as hollow because 
you can look at a breakdown of TPD's current budget and see how much is dedicated to training. And less than 2%, last time I checked, of that $63 million was going towards training. If they're already spending so little money on training, why do they need a police academy training center? Those two things don't really make sense to me, and it seems more of the same process we've seen throughout time, but especially since the 2020 uprising of giving police more money as though chasing bad money with more money is going to fix the problem. And we've seen time and time again that giving the police more money does nothing but increase their ability to oppress and repress the people. And of course, mainstream conversation about uh, police training is pretty monolithic, right? Everyone says we need more training. No one explains what they mean by training. So anyone on the left who is even thinking along the lines of new training is probably more more in the line of like, we should teach police officers critical race theory. Exactly. And I'm betting that's not what the people on the right mean when they say training. I think that advocating for more training is a perfectly reasonable thing to advocate for if you don't know that it's already been disproven. If you don't already know that we have tried that for decades and the results have not been good, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to think, yeah, that, uh, more training, that seems like a good thing to do. It, it just turns out we, we've tried it, and so it may be time to try something new. Exactly. You, you say training, and then you leave it there. Well, the police take that as, oh, more counterinsurgency training, more urban warfare training, which is what has us in the situation dealing with these sort of things we're dealing with right now. That's why the SWAT team from Atlanta was approaching this public park because to them, that's what training looks like because that's what their job is. And instead, those of us on the left think maybe we should learn how to deal with people in a way that doesn't involve guns. Yeah. And just the last thought on this as we wrap up, I think a sort of a whistleblower came out. They were let go from the police force that they were a part of because they said in public that they went through the training. They went through the part of the training, the de-escalation, the let's try to kill people less often training. And then they also went to the other training, the how to protect yourself, how to make sure that if someone's going to die, it's not you training. And of course, that training included comments about how Basically, you need to forget all the stuff that we told you in the de-escalation training. Look, we do that because the law says we have to do that, but you really shouldn't believe it. So how effective is that holistic training going to be when they're explicitly telling the cops to ignore the good parts? Katie Sponsler spent 11 years in the Air Force and five years as a law enforcement ranger with the National Park Service, where she attended her third police academy at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Georgia. This weekend, she tweeted some of what she learned in that training, like how she was told to yell, stop resisting and drop your weapon after firing a gun, because bystanders will remember that you said it and their memory will automatically reverse the order of events. 
She also noted that she was told that de-escalation techniques will get me and my other off- me and other officers killed. And as a smaller law enforcement officer, I was justified escalating my use of force faster than my colleagues because I was always in danger. So I should use it. She lost her job after questioning that training. And joining me now is Katie Sponsler, Air Force veteran, former National Park Ranger and advocate for criminal justice reform. Um, Katie, I uh, saw your thread and thought I have to talk to this lady. Um, The common answer when we see something happen, like what happened to Tyree Nichols, is we need more training. You seem to believe that is not true. Why? I think that there's a huge cultural problem that's exposed. And the more that we go through this training, um, it doesn't make a difference if we don't address those underlying roots in culture. And if we are going through de-escalation or crisis intervention training and then turning around in defensive tactics or survival, street survival or firearms training and saying that doesn't work, that's just required by law. We have to do that. It, it doesn't do any good. And so we have to address those issues that are at the root cause of the cultural problem with law enforcement. Well, Ben, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your insight on this. Thank you. Thanks for giving me time to uh, explain Manny and maybe a a slightly more personal light. Absolutely. One more big thanks to Ben for coming on. He is not one to crave the spotlight for himself, quite the opposite, actually. And so I really appreciate him coming on and, and sharing that perspective and stories. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us text messages through SMS, WhatsApp, or Signal, all with the same number, 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben Ken and Brian for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Memberships is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, you can join our Discord community to talk about the show, the news, or practically anything you like. A link to join is in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.